There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 123. Today in the show, we're joined by Gordon Whittington of North American Whitetail Magazine, and we're discussing the challenges of hunting October bucks and a whole lot more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we're joined by the editor-in-chief of North American Whitetail Magazine, Gordon Whittington. And we're going to be discussing a number of different interesting topics, including some things related to the challenges of hunting during the month of October. And a lot of stuff actually related to the fact that Gordon has had a wide variety of experiences hunting all over the country. So we're going to dive into some of these different regional specifics too. Uh, Maybe some stuff about hunting in Texas, maybe some stuff about hunting in the Southeast, how that all compares with the Midwest, and different stuff along those lines. So it's going to be interesting, but before we get Gordon on the line with us, it's been a long while actually since Dan and I have been able to catch up and fill all of you in on how our seasons are going so far. So Mr. Co-host Daniel Johnson, it's good to have you back. (laughs) Yeah. Have you ever been so busy that you forget to go to the bathroom? It's not like you go in your pants or anything, but you're like, uh, <laughs> holy cow, I haven't peed today. I haven't pooped today. I haven't had water in like a day. Like, have you ever been that busy? Uh, you know, I've been close to that busy, but usually that's a high priority for me. So no matter what, I still, <laughs> I still make it happen. <laughs> but I know you're that's a different funny. type, you're a different animal. So yeah, that's right. One of those days. Oh my huh? God. It's one of those things where it's like I'm really, really, really busy, and then I'm trying to fit bow hunting into into the mix. So we have not talked since the beginning of hunting season, or at least not the right. beginning of your hunting season. Right. Um, how many times have you been out? Uh, well, I went out uh, Saturday, Friday morning, Friday night, Saturday morning, Saturday night, and then looked for a deer on Sunday morning and couldn't find her. Now, that's this past weekend, though. Did you hunt it all opening weekend? I got out 
Wednesday or I got out Sunday night and that was it. Okay. So walk us through because today is October 11th, I think, right? Yep. Today's October yep. 11th. So there's been 11 or 10 days of hunting so far for you in Iowa. So yep. you went out Sunday night. Anything exciting that night? Uh, let's see. Here's what happened. Um, I first night in the stand and I don't know if, you know, the very, I don't know how you are, but the very first night in the stand for me is almost like a decompression chamber where you're just trying to get back into like the hunting mindset. You know, I did my first run and gun setup. Um, I, I took it slow. I made sure I was doing everything right. Um, and then once I was set up, I, you know, tried to clear my mind of everything else except what was currently in front of my face. Right. So I was just trying to decompress and, um, had a, had a fairly good night. Um, I saw three deer. Um, one of them was a, a three-year-old that, uh, I, I, I didn't get the opportunity to pass him, but I would have probably passed him. Uh, how, how big of a three-year-old are we talking from a, from a headgear standpoint? I think he's going to be sitting around like the high one twenties, low one thirties. Um, okay. he's an, he's a nine pointer. Uh, he's kind of got a weird funky, uh, left side, but, uh, but yeah, you know, nothing, you know, nothing that made me personally uh, jump out of my seat. Mm -hmm. It was cool seeing the first buck of the year though, oh, uh, from sure. the tree stand. Um, and then he was, it's funny. So right now you're thinking, okay, they're eating acorns or they're eating. I watched him clear out an entire bush of out right now. There's these there. So it's a bush, it's green. Uh, and they got these red little berries on them. Okay. I don't know if you ever know if you know what those are, <sighs> but yeah, you know, I, I even know the name of them, but I'm struggling right now to think of what it is. Right. Is it choke cherries? Maybe. I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I feel like but, I know, but I now I can't think of it. Right. But he, he cleared out an entire bush. I mean, along, along this field edge. And, uh, I'm, so I was like, man, you know, those Whoa, are did all you just admit to hunting a field edge. Yes. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> don't tell anybody. Okay. Oh, I hunted man. a field edge. Big, I, big know, tough Dan hunting the field. No, but listen, I think you got it mixed up because <laughs> I, I do hunt field edges when I'm in an observation set because okay. uh, I want to see, I want to see you, but, but when I go in for the, you know, dive in, I'm not hunting field edges. Yeah, However, yeah. this, uh, you know, I, I saw him clear out this entire bush, three does or two does came out and he starts pushing them. Like he's putting his nose to the ground, sniffing and, you know, doing a, a half-ass type of chase. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. They weren't having it. He knew it wasn't time. So um, they just all kind of mingled around this this little inside corner of a field for a while. And then right at last light, another deer stepped out. It was a dark-bodied, bigger body. I couldn't see the head on it. Um, but it pushed that other buck out of the picture and – the does kind of just started working their way away and this other deer by the time it kind of got to where i could see they were it was too dark so i don't know what that was hmm. could have been a you know one of the bucks the bigger bucks on the property but uh nothing uh you know i couldn't i couldn't tell what it was interesting so yeah pretty good first sit though so then what the yep. week passes we got that big cold front that came through this right. past weekend so you took yep. friday off huh Took Friday off, uh, hit the stand uh, Friday morning, 
uh, saw three Larrys or Dinks and uh, then one doe. They all four came out at one time and just kind of milled around this low spot in the field before they headed into the timber. Um, I checked trail cameras, came back home for a little bit, then headed uh, down to my main farm and uh, for, for Friday night's hunt and had an absolutely awesome hunt. Uh, I, I was kind of doing another, I was doing another observation type of sit, but knowing what works their way through there. Um, and after consulting deer lab, I don't know if you use that or not. Oh, yeah. uh, so, you know, I'm using, I'm using my deer lab. I'm going up and I'm saying, okay, last year at this time, or 2014 or 2013 let's just check my trail camera pictures that i've had i have uploaded on there and they they are you know saying that i have some activity at this certain this certain fence crossing all right so i'm gonna go sit there it's not only a good observation stand i can see everything coming in but statistically it's a it's a high spot because my goal was to shoot a doe well the short story is I had a, I have five does come from the South, three does come from the North and the, they're walking through this bean field that has been cut, blown over by wind. And it's making a lot of noise, almost the sound like me walking through it. So the does to the South get scared and start blowing at the, uh, does to the North, which ends up scaring the does to the North and they all kind of run away. So, <laughs> so they, they spooked each other. Now, after a while, they all came out back again. Um, I ended up passing, uh, um, a really big bodied three-year-old with like 125, 130 inch non-typical. He may have been a little bigger than nine, uh, 130, but he had like a, uh, four point side and then he, or yeah, a four, no, it was a five point side real small. And then it's like a crazy non-typical a double brow with like a twisted kind of a drop type of deal. Dude, but that's awesome. But yeah, it was a pretty, pretty decent buck. And then, um, passed a, a two more four corns and then, uh, probably with about 30 minutes, uh, 30, 45 minutes left in the night. I start hearing what I thought was rattling in the distance. So I put my binos up into this, uh, you know, through the tree line and I can see two bucks sparring. They weren't fighting, but they were tickling each other's antlers. And one of them was, I believe I couldn't tell because there's so many leaves still on the tree, but I believe one of them was a buck that I have put on my hit list. Um, kind of a, an eight pointer with his brows, are split like banana peels like they don't split and go up they split and both kind of peel down wow. so um that's a four-year-old i believe and other than that then uh you know the does never did get close enough to uh within shooting range because they got spooked and then they all came out further down the fence line into this cornfield uh so that was over um then the wind shifted so i wasn't able to hunt in that area for the following day. Um, the next morning I went to what I thought was going to be a historical travel pattern or travel corridor back to the, um, bedding area in a different area. Didn't see any deer. I, I heard them cross the ravine, but I couldn't see them. They were too far down. And then, um, what a Saturday night I went to this little back pocket 
where I had uh, were in the past when the corn's in there, they feel very comfortable coming into this this corner of this different cornfield and they just hang out there. I bumped one doe at two thirty or one buck two thirty in the afternoon walking in who was already in this cornfield and then uh, I set up he came back out and what else oh um, so I'm sitting there I'm you know just kind of hanging out waiting for it to get to the good good time of the night and a doe and a buck a buck's already following this doe and it's a uh, maybe a hundred inch buck maybe a eight pointer and he's kind of following this doe real close and I'm I'm by this time I'm standing up looking down and the the, the doe looks at my bottom stick on my tree on the tree my bottom bottom lone wolf stick follows every stick up and looks at me and blows and runs into the timber she didn't know what i was so she blew and she blew i'm talking 30 minutes of blowing and by this time i'm just like oh my god do i get down right well she she gets close again she stops blowing she gets close she blows and blows and blows again and then she goes back into the timber. And then finally, I don't know why why deer do this. If they're afraid of something, but they get curious because they don't officially know what it is because mm-hmm. she never had my scent. She steps out in the field, and I draw back. And I range the spot where she stepped out at – I had a gap between the field edge and a tree limb, right? And she came out fairly fast, and I ranged the spot. And uh, the spot was 30, 35 yards, and she stepped out a little bit further than that. So I put my 40-yard pin on her, and I set the, you know, I, you know, settled, let the arrow fly, and I hit her, but I couldn't see really where because it, she was right in line with a cornrow. So then she, she jumps out, she goes into the cornfield, and she stands there for 20, 30 minutes. And she, every step she took, it looked like she was getting ready to fall over. So I, I, I said to myself, you know, I think I hit guts. I think I hit a little bit low and a little bit back, but there's a chance I got liver. All right. So I said, okay, I got to treat this like any deer. If it was a big buck, what would I do? Back out, give it time. So I went home the next morning. I come back with my stepdad and we Started with where she was standing, right? I mean, it. if she took a step, she was almost getting ready to fall over. And we go there. We find a little bit of blood. And I'm talking maybe 10, 15 feet of blood and nothing. And we, we ended up gritting probably close to 40 acres of cornfield and timber. And I ended up not being able to find her. And it, it basically ruined my weekend. Yeah. Jeez. I was going to say it sounded like a great weekend and then you really ended on a downer. Yeah. And you know, it's one of those things where it was a 40 yard shot in an open cornfield. You know, I don't know. I've, I felt confident enough to take the shot and it didn't work out. I, I was off. Um, it sucks that I ended up wounding a deer and taking you know, a, a shot, you know, some people out there probably would say, Hey, you don't, you shouldn't be able to, you shouldn't take a shot like that. 
Well, I look at it this way. If that buck was 200 inches, I would have taken the shot just like I would take the shot on a doe. No, you know what I mean? Like you have to, just because it's a giant buck doesn't mean you should change your, you know, change your, your range, right? You have to be and, and ethically, I felt that I, I was good at 40 yards and I pulled off a shot that was not as good as I hoped it to be. And unfortunately, um, you know, who knows if this, uh, this doe is alive or not. And it really, it really sucks. Sorry, man. I know when we've talked about this type of thing happens and it's, uh, it's the, the worst part of hunting is when something yeah. like that goes wrong and we do everything we can possibly do to have, you know, as quick mm-hmm. and ethical kill as possible. But as, as you and I both know it, no matter what you, no matter how hard you try sometimes or how much you practice yep. sometimes just stuff happens. Well, and, and it's crazy, right? Because you can practice on a target all day long. You can practice from a tree stand at a target, but the hunting, not to make excuses for a poor shot, but you don't practice for a deer that you have to stop. You don't have to have, you don't practice for a deer that's already been spooked. You don't practice on, um, you know, all these different scenarios because in the timber, some of these scenarios are almost unpra- unpracticable, if yeah. that makes sense. No, it does. So, so you know, and I don't, I'm the last guy to make excuses. I, I feel bad that I ended up wounding this deer. Um, so, you know, I got to keep doing what I do, and that's practice in my off time. So, yeah, keep on keeping on. Yep. Well, I'm sorry to hear about how that first weekend went. I, uh, I now have 45 seconds to give you an update on how my last 11 days went hunting. <laughs> uh, I'm, dude, I'm so sorry. I, I, I just, you should have said, shut up. <laughs> I'll give you the really, really quick Cliff Notes version of what's gone on. I just want to know if you had any encounters with Holyfield. I've hunted Holyfield four times. I've yet to see him. I saw one other potential shooter at one of my other stand locations while I was hunting one spot. I saw him like 400 yards away. And then I hunted a couple new properties in between during the week, and I saw a potential shooter on one of them. Didn't get a shot. That's basically my season so far. So do you think you know where he's stepping out? Holyfield? Yeah. I don't know what Holyfield's doing anymore. I saw him the last night. No trail cam picks? I don't have any trail, although I've, I've no. I've got two okay. cameras I've checked since opening night. He's not on them. The one camera that's in the middle of his core area, I have not checked since opening night, so I'm going to do that in the next day or two, drive the four-wheeler out there, check that. Um, but last time I saw him was the night before the season, and since then, like I said, I went and hunted four different times. I was obsessively careful. The first three times I hunted in that little core area, right. once in the ground blind where I had to, I put waders on and walked up a stream for like 150 yards to get into this little spot. Then I crawled on all hands and knees to get into the back of this ground blind so that no possible way anything could hear me, see me, smell me, etc. Didn't see anything that night. Then the next day, the next two hunts, I hunted a tree stand in that area and I took like this crazy roundabout route that I've never done before, but I'm just like trying to take every possible, every possible thing I can do right. to reduce the chances of this buck seeing me or hearing me when I sneak in, if he was bedded up near in the front there and still didn't see him. I mean, everything was pretty darn great. I didn't spook any deer. I never, at least that I heard or saw, I never spooked any deer. Um, but just, 
He wasn't. He wasn't moving. So there could be a million different reasons why. Maybe he right. still did hear me or saw me or smell me. Maybe other neighboring property hunters spooked him and kind of caused him to go nocturnal. But it's kind of how it is here, at least where I'm hunting in Michigan. It's like you've got the first day or two, maybe, and then these bucks just on a dime switch it up because there's literally there's probably 20 guys within 500 yards probably of where I'm hunting, maybe less. I mean, there's a lot, of, maybe not 20, but a lot. A lot, a lot of hunters, and um, so, that changes things. So, have you now switched your attention over to this other shooter that you sh- that you saw? I still am focusing on Holyfield. I'm basically pulling out though, and I'm not going to hunt again until either I get daylight trail camera pictures or late October cold front happens. Otherwise, I'm just laying off this property completely now. Um, now that said, if I get to that time period and it starts getting good, and I go into hunt, and if I see this other buck, and I actually saw another buck from the road one night I didn't hunt I still was able to scout just at last light and I saw a different buck that was super crazy wide I've never seen a buck this wide on this property before he might be a four-year-old or three-year-old I don't know nice um so if one of those two other bucks shows up and presents me a great shot opportunity I'm gonna have a decision to make I don't know what I would do right now because I'd love to kill Holyfield but at the same time in Michigan if you get your shot at a three-year-old or four-year-old buck um and if it's you know 120 or something like that I mean that's a really, really, really rare deer here. And if you get one opportunity a year, you're in the top 5%. So I don't know if I can pass up that opportunity. Um, If I did end up shooting one of those bucks, then I would lay off the property the rest of the year and I would let Holyfield hopefully just create a sanctuary again and hopefully hunt him again at five. So maybe that'll happen or maybe I'm just going to focus on Holyfield. That's my number one best option. I hope that's what happens, but um, just kind of see how it plays out, I guess. How many how many trail cameras do you have right now surrounding where you think Holyfield lives? I have three on that property right now. I'm okay. going to add a fourth here in the next day or two when I go out. I'm going to go out, take the four-wheeler, and just check these cameras um, that I haven't been able to get to because I've been so careful not to go in there. But now since I'm not going to hunt it for like another three weeks, I'm going to take the four-wheeler and drive up to these edges where I can just easily change out the cards and batteries on these cameras and just get them ready to be, you know, hopefully collecting some intel from me over these next three weeks. And then, um, you know, once we get to that late October time period, then I'm going to try again. All right, man. Well, good luck. Thank you, sir. So I know, uh, we need to, we need to pause here a second before we get Gordon on the line and take a break to thank our partners at sick gear. And then we will start talking with Gordon Whittington. So as we do every week, we have a Sitka story today, and we're joined again by Sitka Gear employee Brad Christian, who shared with me a pretty awesome story of an unexpected hunting role reversal between him and his wife. Now to set the stage quickly, Brad's away from home, and he gets this text from his wife asking if he'll come back home and watch the kids for the night because she wanted to go hunting. Now Brad was all about his wife getting out in the woods, but he knew this could be a little bit tricky as she had a flight to catch at 5 a.m. the next morning. I said, absolutely. Drove home, you know, jammed back and, and kind of did, passed each other in the driveway, high-fived, you know, and wished her luck. And, you know, she makes up the tree and, and you know, I'm getting the play-by-play of, you know, sawbird, you know, here's the here's the weather, you know, here's the wind, here's, you know, uh, the selfie, you know, in the uh, the Sitka face mask, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, she's, she's a planner, I think, you know, like, like a, a lot of us. She's texting me like, hey, what if I, you know, what if I kill a buck, you know, what, what, you know, in terms of processing and, and everything. And I'm thinking, goodness, like 
probably statistically, right? Just, you know, not trying to be Debbie Downer, but probably not something we need. You know, uh-huh. I'm not, I'm not, not real worried about it, you know? <laughs> and she's like, you know, I got to leave. I mean, my flight leaves at 5 a.m. So I got to be gone. And I'm just like, Hey babe, that'd be an awesome problem to have. Let's just, we'll, we'll cross that bridge, you know, when we get there. Um, so I, I, you know, for kind of forget about it. And then, you know, the soft box. And then, you know, a little bit later, just shot a buck. And I'm like, what? Text her back. She goes, and and sorry, so sorry, my battery's dying. And I'm like, oh my gosh, of course your battery's dying because your battery's always dying. And she's like, sorry, this is going to be it. I'm like, did you hit him good? She's goes, yeah, I think so. But my girlfriend, you know, she she saw the butt too go by, so I'm questioning. And my battery's seriously going to die. And then she's gone. And I'm like, awesome, great. She's like, I don't know, a couple hours away, you know, leaving, you know, in you know at three in the morning. I got the kids and I'm just like, well, that's that. So I try to stay up for, I was exhausted and eventually I, I pass out on the couch and just, you know, that was it. And I wake up in the morning and I'm like, Oh my goodness, what happened? You know, I'm still like, okay. I'm like running around. She's gone. She's not in her bed. I look out my trucks in the driveway. And so I beeline it out there and I, I drop the tailgate down and there's this buck laying in the bed of my truck with it. And there's a piece of computer paper that's like pierced by the G2. It's just hanging there that says, thanks, Mr. Mom. I'll text you my processing <laughs> instructions. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> Pretty awesome indeed. That was a Sitka story. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear's technical hunting apparel, you can visit SitkaGear.com. And now let's get back to the show and give Gordon a call. All right. With us on the line now is Gordon Whittington. Welcome to the show, Gordon. Glad to be here, guys. Yeah, we appreciate you taking the time, especially, you know, during hunting season. I always feel bad trying to get people to come on the show during hunting season in an afternoon when I know a lot of people are thinking about hunting at least. So appreciate you doing that, Gordon. And I guess before we dive into talking about that topic, hunting, right now, I guess it'd be, I think, helpful for all of us to hear a little bit about who you are, some of your background. You know, we I briefly introduced you at the beginning of the show Folks, I'm sure are familiar with what you've done with North American Whitetail, but I guess how'd you get to this point? Well, that's an interesting question. I grew up on a cattle ranch in Central Texas. Um, killed my first deer when I was seven. That was 1963. I was sitting on my grandfather's knee, shooting an open-sided 3220 Model 92 Winchester carbine. Um, there was only a few hundred serial numbers apart from the one John Wayne used in True Grit. So, wow. Wow. you know, I guess that's my—I guess that's my earliest claim to fame, if there was such a thing. <laughs> but it was a doe, and, and I've told—I've told many people. I say, you know, look, I shot that doe through the heart, and at the same moment, deer hunting shot me through the heart, <laughs> because I absolutely never, after that, could think of anything cooler than deer hunting. And and I'd grown up I'd grown up on a ranch like I say and 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 my parents were in the meat processing business so they not only were in the cattle business but every fall they would take in 800 to a thousand deer to process and this was golly 50 years ago now and and so I grew up around that and hunters bringing in deer and just being around all of that and and my talent such as it was I knew it was never going to be in engineering or mathematics or anything like that and I wasn't going to play in the NBA little old me so I kind of figured you know I need to figure out something that I can do with language and my love was to deal with uh, was was to write and with dealing with images and and just trying to convey and communicate information 
And it turned out that deer hunting was a perfect entree into that for me, as it turned out to be at a time when the whitetail population was starting to grow. We were starting to get more specialized media. And I came aboard North American Whitetail just as that wave was starting to swell in the early 80s. And I put my surfboard up on top of it, and I've been riding it ever since. But I'm, I know I'm getting close to shore now because I'm 60 years old, but I'm still having a good time. <laughs> That's awesome. So given – you have a unique perspective, I think, compared to a lot of us in that you got to observe this rise in this, in this wave of deer hunting media and excitement and, the uh, I don't know, this big buck hysteria of sorts maybe that we're living in now. I'm kind of curious – I don't know, what are your thoughts on where things have gone from that time that North American Whitetail first started to where we are now today? Well, if you look back in the early 80s, North American Whitetail, its very first issue came out in the fall of 1982. So we've we've been at it a little over three decades now. And I, I came aboard and I wrote two articles for the third issue of the magazine that was in early 83 and i was still living in texas at the time and the magazine was founded here in the atlanta area and in summer of 84 i moved over here to actually work on the magazine and i've been here ever since so so i have kind of been here through you know the long haul of it if you will Uh, certainly there were a lot of people very interested in white-tailed deer long before i was born and and certainly the white-tail has been important in american hunting North American hunting for for you know centuries now, but but the restoration that was really just you know coming on strong in the 60s and 70s and obviously 80s and 90s all the way up into the early 2000s across much of North America, particularly the Midwest and and some parts of the Northeast. I think we saw that there was just this latent interest in big game hunting that otherwise was not available for people. And so it was such a rush for them to get to go out and hunt something besides squirrels and rabbits, you know, or ducks and really go out and feel like they were big game hunting in a part of the country where that had been absent for a while. And so I think that was part of the mystique and the allure of it that really got people chummed up and interested in not just shooting deer but as they as they started to find out that there were giant deer at least had existed in the past whether they still did or not people were fascinated by these big deer and who doesn't want to shoot a big deer after you know they exist i mean you you know that old six-pointer you know that hangs out behind the 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 farm pond he looks pretty good to you until you've been to the deer show and seen the hole in the horn buck hanging there and all of a sudden you realize there's a different world out there than i live in and yet it's here in North America, and regular people sometimes are the guys shooting these mega giant deer. Well, I think that that dream and fantasy of being one of those guys and, and having a chance to really kind of live out that fantasy, I think that was a big part of the allure of, of the mega buck, if you will, uh, back in the 80s and 90s in particular. Uh, some people feel like now, well, you know, we've seen so many giant deer. There's so many farm deer now. There's so many videos. There's so many sheds. There's so many everything out there, collections and stores, replicas, you name it, that there is a certain amount of what I think Dr. Dr. Kroll has often referenced as antler fatigue. Uh, we don't have any less interest in shooting these mega giant deer. We're still excited about the idea of it, but seeing these giants deer that are that 30 years ago were totally unknown and now somewhat somewhat more common, whether through social media, whether through 
just the general blitz of media in general, including us here at North American Whitetail. I do think that's taken some of the mystique, if you will, off the off the world class buck. But nonetheless, hunting those deer is still as magical as it ever was, and maybe more so. Yeah. What is it about? What is it about a giant buck that has guys like us daydreaming all year round? You know, what's what's what do you think that draw is? Well, you have to, there's several things, I believe. I mean, as impressive as a giant pronghorn antelope or a mountain goat is, they all pretty much look like the same animals. Some are a little bit bigger than others. But whitetails, even 120-class nine-pointer, they don't all look alike. They don't all, uh, they aren't all uh, taken by the same method in the same way in exactly the same kind of habitat. All sorts of different situations. Uh, you know, the land holdings sometimes are small. We understand that the odds are against us getting a shot at the monster versus maybe the guy across the fence or two farms over. So we've got that. We feel like there's a massive challenge to that, number one, because we know it. you just don't shoot these big deer every day. Uh, and, and sometimes you go 50 years and you never get a chance at a 150-inch deer, and yet you could be the best hunter in your county but you just don't have big deer to hunt. And so I think knowing how rare it is and how special these animals are and how difficult they are to hunt, I think all of that contributes to this fantasy that, man, will I ever be the guy that shoots a deer like that? Or can I make it happen if a deer like that comes by me? Can I keep it together? Can I get the job done? I think I think there's so much, if you will, just an aura about these mega giant deer that it's uh, in some ways they're intimidating. And in fact, I've heard writers say one time you know this is the only animal that can intimidate you without even knowing that you're in its presence because he can just walk by your stand and you fall apart and he just walked by blissfully not even knowing you were in a tree trying to kill him but you turned to jello and he never was even threatened by your presence yet that's why you were there was to kill that deer and so (laughs) when you realize that that's the effect they have on us and sometimes the more you yearn for that opportunity the harder it is to make it happen because you put so much pressure on yourself and sometimes the deer just blissfully goes on its way and doesn't even know that it was close to dying and yet you you almost fell out of the tree mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know i don't know how many big game animals can do that but a white-tailed deer can do that do you still do you still feel that gordon you've you've killed a lot of deer in your day do you still fall apart and turn to jello when when some of these big boys roll through well, you know, to be honest with you, you know, I I can keep it together pretty well myself. And I think one of the reasons is that because I'm so often now basically there with a cameraman and we're trying to shoot TV footage. And while internally, of course, you're a wreck sometimes because it's a tense situation, a lot of anticipation and adrenaline, you're you're having to focus pretty hard to make sure you do your part because you are there to shoot TV footage. At the same time, at its basic level, this is still hunting. And if you don't have any emotion, you really do need to look for something else to do because it's too much time and trouble and effort and money to go hunt big deer if you don't get anything out of it in terms of a thrill or an elevated pulse rate. I mean, <laughs> otherwise, why even bother? Yeah, the, the day that I don't get that elevated pulse rate It'll be the day that probably I, uh, like you said, consider some other hobbies or easier ways of acquiring my food maybe because that definitely is an important part of it. And it never, 
it has yet to get old for me. Thank goodness. Um, I guess so speaking of that, right, uh, for the 15 minutes actually before you came on the show with us, me and Dan were just talking about our October hunting woes, all the things that have gone wrong for us and how we have not killed a deer yet. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to start our conversation with Gordon was just about some of the challenges of hunting this time of year. We're entering, and we've all heard it a thousand times, we're entering this period of the season that many people refer to as the October lull. Um, I guess maybe, what do you think about that, Gordon? Is there such a thing? Do you believe that the October lull is, is that fact or fiction? Well, I think there is no question that at various times of the fall and really year round, obviously, but during the time of year when hunting is legal, we all know there are times of year when your probability of seeing a mature buck on his feet in legal shooting light are better than others. Uh, it depends on habitat, weather, moon phase, but mostly hunting pressure, to some extent habitat type. I, there's all these different factors involved, deer densities, so many things. But I would say that in general, if you if you talk to the guys who have, uh, let's say, like in Michigan, uh, October 1 bow opener, uh, Illinois that way, you know, right around October 1 at least, you've got – you know, the deer have been out of velvet for three weeks to a month. Uh, the bucks are, you know, of course, somewhat reclusive and solitary, really, when they come out of velvet. They come out of their bachelor groups. They really go into a short travel pattern. They don't move much in daylight. Even if they're not spooked or being hunted, they're not moving a long way to food. And, you know, maybe out in the prairie of Wyoming, you've got deer walking two miles to an alfalfa field and back, you know, even in early season. But for the most part, in most habitats, you have deer on a very short travel pattern. And that's, you know, compounded by the fact that then suddenly we get the acorns and the other fall mass that starts to come into play. And that's a, that's mostly back in the woods. And we're trying to kill these deer on the edges because we don't want to penetrate their sanctuaries. And yet their sanctuaries might literally have acorns dropping into their bedding areas as those deer are lying there waiting for dark. Well, that deer's got very little incentive unless he's really thirsty. He's got very little incentive to get up and move much in daylight. And I think if you look at radio telemetry and you look at all the different GPS studies that have been done on wild deer, you'll see that mature bucks just have a very short travel pattern at this time of year. So there aren't... If you have the terminus, let's say, is a food plot, and it may be the best food plot in the county, and you may have the best bedding area 200 yards away from there in a swamp or something, if that buck is in that swamp and he's going to that food plot at night, he's got very little ground to cover to get there, and he, he can get on his feet right at dark, you know, stretch a little bit, rub his rack a couple of times, and then prance right out to the food plot, and he's already too late for you to kill him. Now, that's just a fact of life. That, you know, hunting pressure didn't necessarily cause that. It might have accentuated that pattern, but it didn't really cause it. He's just got no incentive to get there early. He's also got no incentive to stay there after daylight in the morning. By the time you you got daylight coming over the food plot, he's normally back in a place where you can't get him killed. So these are just realities. And he's not very responsive to rattling or calling, generally speaking. You don't want to do a deer drive. There's all sorts of things that you're not going to do in early season that otherwise might compensate for that lack of uh, mobility on his part or his la a lack of a daytime pattern. You put all that together, and that's a really long-winded way of saying uh, they're hard to kill. Now, <laughs> yeah. but, but we understand why they're hard to kill. They're just not on their feet much in daylight. 
And and I don't know what you can ultimately do to change that pattern very much. Uh, trail cameras clearly have made it easier for us to pinpoint those locations where they're spending time, but you have to be very careful not to blow the deer out, either checking cameras or going in to hunt that spot. And a lot of guys just get so impatient in early season. It's like, oh, man, fall's finally here. I've been waiting all, all year to get in the tree. I'm going. Well, the wind's not quite right. I'm going anyway. I, you know, i got to go. It's Saturday. I'm going. Well, you can go and blow him out and not see him again for three months and have your neighbor kill him three weeks later. And that's a lot of times is just the reality of what happens is that we just don't have the discipline to wait for better conditions. So would you typically recommend let's say we've got someone who's hunting in that type of scenario you just listed there where he's not getting daylight trail camera pictures of a buck he's not seeing daylight activity from a buck yet because of that situation right he's this buck doesn't need to travel very far maybe he hasn't been overly pressured yet but he just doesn't have that incentive to move during daylight so that's our scenario Mm -hmm. would you tell this person or i guess would you typically think this type of person should wait until the rut or are there some things that they should do now to try to still make it happen? I would I would go to a separate area and try to get my doe shot. That's the first thing I would focus on. If I can't get him shot in the, in the setup that I feel is most likely to produce an opportunity, in the first time or two or three that I sit there during the earliest days of season and catch him unaware and possibly get him shot before he knows the season is even open, if I can't do that, I'm going to pull out, I'm going to go somewhere else, I'm going to try to get my doe shot, or, to be honest with you, for many of us, it's I'm going to try to get all my jobs done around the house so that when prime time gets here, I can spend more time in the woods. And I do think that's some of it's a, 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 a function of time allocation. We all have limited time, even those of us who hunt, quote, for a living, we all still have other things in our life we have to do, and the worst thing in the world is to put all those off, hunt hard in October, mess up your spot, then come the 5th of November and realize you're behind on your honeydews, and then have to spend three days in prime time catching up so that you can then go and chase deer again. I mean, I think sometimes we just don't have a really good game plan, and because of that, that's not to say people don't kill big ones in October, early to mid-October, they certainly do. I mean, there's been some big ones killed the last you know, a couple of weeks all, all over North America. Uh, but the number of people hunting relative to the number of big deer opportunities is, is a pretty skewed ratio. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's hard to argue with that. It's definitely possible, but at the same time it's challenging. At least from everything I've ever learned and from all the different people we've talked to on this podcast, I think, you know, one of the big things it comes down to is, you know, there's certain types of conditions or certain little weak spots in a big buck's armor of sorts that you can take advantage of if you have that perfect scenario for it. But eight times out of ten, you know, either you don't have that scenario or you don't have all the intel that you need to make a smart move or whatever it might be. Eight times out of ten, usually the smarter bet is to wait until those right conditions because, to your point, when you start pushing in there and doing things before the time's right, before the scenario is right, you're just going to muck things up before you ever even had a chance. And then when you might have had that better chance, maybe in late October or November or whatever it is or when the cold front comes through, you know, now you can't take advantage of that because you've already educated that buck. And that's a tough lesson to learn. Yeah, it's difficult, and and I could never blame anybody for saying, look, I just flat enjoy being in the deer woods, and even if it messes up my chances of killing the big one, I want to go. 
well, how on earth could you tell a guy that you shouldn't go? I mean, right. I, I, you know, deer, deer hunting is supposed to be, to be fun. And if that's fun to him and he's legal and safe and ethical, then good for him. I mean, I hope he shoots one, but if he doesn't shoot one, I at least know that he was out there, you know, exercising his right and the privilege to go hunting and be part of the American hunting force that uh, we're all so proud of. So I don't really, and it's hard for me to bash that guy and say, oh, you're crazy or you're not being smart. I mean, I would like for him to see the payoff for doing things a little different way, but I'm never going to bash him because he made a, quote, poor decision and, and educated the buck that he might have otherwise shot. I mean, that's that's his call, not mine. Yeah. Now, given your position, you know, with North American Whitetail Magazine, you get to hear a lot of different perspectives from other writers and hunters who do sometimes push it a little bit more in October and have success. Are there any, I don't know, any standout tactics that you have seen from some of these other guys who do like to focus on October that either intrigue you the most or that you think have the most merit? Well, I think if you think if you got control of your land and habitat to where you can have, number one, a very uh, relaxed deer herd. Uh, you know, and, and, and go out of your way to minimize the pressure on those deer so that you can wait for that little cool front that really gets the buck a little bit more active, you know, a little earlier in the evening coming out to the plot. And you've got a plot set up so that you've got places between bedding and, and feeding where you can get him shot. I do feel like if you can if you can almost landscape your property or your hunting area that way or or put the scouting in to find those situations, that clearly that's going to give you an advantage over the guy who's just randomly going to go say, well, there's acorns falling here and there's some deer pellets. I think I'll sit here. Um, yeah, he might kill the mini world record, but the chances are better for the guy who's actually got a plan, as we all know. So, so I look at it and say, yeah, if you can find that, you know, a place where deer are pushed a little bit more into a travel pattern because of topography, changing crops, possibly, um, you know, you've got isolated food sources as opposed to widespread food sources. If you can find those little honey holes, if you will, and really be super careful with the wind, be be very disciplined about how you go in there and get out of them and, and hunt them lightly, but give yourself a chance on the periphery of that deer's travel pattern to get a crack at him if he makes a little bit of a slip up one afternoon or one morning. But, you know, day in, day out, you're just going to have to be very disciplined in how you approach it because, um, again, it's it only takes one slip up on our part, and the buck is totally educated to at least that particular hunting setup. Now, he might continue to roam widely across the area and get shot by somebody else, but, but his knowledge of that one particular ambush site that you've set up it, we want to minimize that and we and you know and whether it's you know because we've hunted it sloppily you know we we went in there wrong wind or we threw trash on the ground or we didn't you know we didn't we went in in bad conditions and we ba- basically left a lot of, it, of 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 telltale knowledge for him to pick up by our presence even if he didn't come by the stand when we were in it he still knows we were there and what we got to just continue to go back to is minimizing the possibility of that. But I do think that the guys that are most successful most often are really just crowding in as far as they dare on the downwind side of a travel pattern that they have reason to know is there either because of sightings, you know, sign, 
uh, or more often anymore, is just simply trail camera images that tell them that they're on the right pattern. But you still have to be careful about how you hunt it. Yeah. And speaking of that whole topic of, you know, just being particularly careful about everything related to hunting pressure, um, you might remember I actually wrote an article for North American Whitetail a few years ago about how I personally have decided to minimize almost completely the number of mornings that I hunt during, you know, early to mid-October. Um, and it's a long-running discussion that me and Dan here have with between ourselves and other guests and stuff. And I guess I'm just curious about your take on that. What's your perspective on morning hunts in early to mid-October? Well, I have shot some some bucks in the morning in, let's say, the third week of October, 20th, 25th, somewhere in there, where, of course, the later you get in October, the generally speaking, the better things are going to get. Um, I have had a little bit of luck on some bucks, some early bucks starting to cruise small isolated food plots and sometimes even coming into a, to a buck decoy. And I've had I've had pretty good luck doing that. I do feel like that kind of minimizes my disturbance of any real security cover because I'm out there on the edge of an opening, and um, you know I can hunt that way. And if he if he comes out and he sees a decoy and he's responsive to it, then he comes around, and gives me a shot. He's the right buck. Then then I'm golden. If it doesn't happen, I've not I've at least not disturbed any significant security cover in the process. I can back out, take my decoy, and go home. So I have seen, you know, sometimes you tend to think, well, I've got to be back in the deepest, darkest swamp to kill one, you know, during this lull period. Maybe not, but you do need a little bit of weather or something to get that buck a little bit more interested in what's about to come in November. And if you get that set of conditions, I do think that's a great time to get to, to get a shot at, you know, at some relatively mature buck. Hmm. What are your thoughts on all this, Dan? I, I just have a question. You know, I always like to learn from how I fail. What do you think from a from a hunter standpoint are, you know, what do we fail at the most? And and then how how should we fix that failure by learning? Well, here's the thing. You know, if you ever run into to some guy who's bragging about how smart he was or what a great hunter he was because he finally killed the big buck, you know, what I like to to do is turn it around the other way and say, look, if you want to take credit for every time you kill a big one, you also have to take the blame for every time you don't kill one. And that ratio will not be favorable for anybody. (laughs) No. (laughs) Because we're all going to fail dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And when I say fail, I mean fail to fill a tag with a mature buck. It doesn't mean that we did anything wrong, and maybe he just didn't come by that day, and maybe we hunted him on the only place in our hunt, uh, our potential hunting area where we had a chance, and he just didn't walk by that day. We can't make him walk by. So sometimes you have to understand that this is a, it, 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 there's a lot of patience involved here. I believe it was Gene Winslow who said many years ago, the great Gene Winslow who said, you know, if you know for us to have a successful season, we've only got to be right one time we hunt a hundred days but we only got to be right one time and and we won the buck to have an unsuccessful season only has to be wrong one time so you know if you look at it that way then he ends up dead so if you look at it that way you realize our stakes are much much lower than his and the fact that we didn't see him does not mean that we messed up it might mean that he just wasn't there that day we couldn't hunt where he was 
It might mean that he never got out of his bed that day, and we were unwilling to push him out of his bed to see him so we could say, we, hey, we saw a big buck. It doesn't do any good to say you saw a big buck. You don't get a good shot. All you did was mess up your spot. So a lot of times what people term as failure, oh, too bad you had a bad hunt. You didn't kill one. Hey, some of the best hunts I've ever been on, I never even saw a big deer. You know, I just I just loved the people I was with, the time I was there, the countryside, the the challenge, the the whole feel of the trip was it was a great trip, and yet I I totally got skunked, so I quote failed. And other times I've killed a big deer, but I just didn't particularly like the experience because there were people problems or something about it wasn't it just wasn't that much fun. And so while I have a nice deer on my wall, I don't look at that as necessarily a quote overwhelming success either because a big part of what I was going for was fun and, and, and the chance to just to be out in creation and to enjoy myself. So, so some of it comes down to success and failure, frankly, is goes beyond the, the, whether or not you feel the tag. So we have to, we have to be realistic about even why we're out there. And I think once we take a little pressure off ourselves, I think we just enjoy the hunt more. And frankly, sometimes we hunt better. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that a lot of hunters are putting pressure on themselves to, you know, I don't know, maybe they're hunting for the wrong reasons. I don't think there's any question that that's the case. If we, if we could get, you know, ego, which is of course is just a, you know, just a basic human frailty, if you will. I mean, I think that everybody's got some ego and yet when we let it dominate, uh, I want to kill a big deer because, I want to kill an 11-pointer because old Joe's never killed an 11-pointer. I want to kill a deer bigger than Joe's killed. Or I want a deer that scores more than so-and-so. Or I want people to think I'm the great hunter instead of so-and-so. Well, why are you even out there then? Because you know, yeah. only one guy's going to kill or one woman's going to kill the biggest one. Everybody else then theoretically is a failure. You know, If you don't kill the biggest one, then I guess you're, you're all losers, right? Well, I'd hate to think that that's how we gauge deer hunting. But yet some people are that way, and I think perhaps the emphasis on score and ranking and perhaps pro-staffing, television, all the perception by the, quote, regular person that, you know, the people out in front of the cameras or in the ads or in the TV, uh, in the magazine articles, perhaps they're, um, you know, they think they're better than us, or you, know, you never know how people's minds work. I mean, everybody's different. We know that. But I do think there's a lot of people that there's a, there's just an inherent envy factor here. And, and I don't blame them for being envious of the opportunities other people have. I think that's, it goes without saying that they see somebody on TV shooting a monster buck out in beautiful country. They say, golly, I wish that was me. Um, but I think that's human nature. But, but at the same time, I do think if you let it control you and, and drive you, you can, that's where we end up, frankly, with some real legal issues. We certainly end up with ethical problems, and I think we get just a lot of bad blood. And none of that is productive for deer hunting. Yeah, very true. It's uh, it's something that I think that social media and some we actually had an episode about this relatively recent where we were just talking about this, and that I think social media sometimes is like an, uh, a compounding factor on all these things, right? When you now have the ability to everyone can share everyone sees what everyone else has done or has killed or is doing or whatever it might be everyone can comment and it sometimes creates a uh, a nasty situation at times that i think seems to then continue this vicious cycle that uh, is a challenge i think today maybe more so than it ever has been 
Well, you know what you, you know. You know what you run into sometimes is, I mean, if if a buck is too big, if a buck is so big that you just have a hard time believing that he's even real, you know, if you put it on Facebook, there will be a response sooner or later, usually within the first hour. Well, it looks like it's out of a high fence to me, mm-hmm. or I think that was poached, or so and so bought that off a game farm, or fill in the blank. I mean, it'll be something negative. Now. Now, I don't think very often, to be honest with you, that there's any real fire where the smoke is in this case. I think most big deer are killed the way that people say, and I think they're killed fair chase and ethically. But there have been enough outliers, if you will, that we know it's possible that somebody could try to pull one. And even if the deer is not killed illegally in a high fence, I mean, the perception that you're trying to pull something by by bragging about a high fence deer and not saying that it's high fence. I think that that has got people pretty leery of some of the really big deer that were legitimately taken. And so, you know, I, I told somebody one time, I said, man, I said, my, my dream is to have shot so many giant bucks that everybody thinks I'm a poacher, <laughs> you know, but 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 it's a joke but in some ways it's almost true it's like if you've killed very many really big deer there is somebody that thinks you must be doing it wrong because mm-hmm. well after all they lived there their whole life and they'd never kill one that big yeah and the only alternative to you being a poacher is that you're a better hunter than they are and they, they can't handle <laughs> that so they'll that's impossible <laughs> yeah you know and so that's just that's just how people are i guess again human nature is explains a lot of these problems but social media has only made it easier for bad human nature to be, be to be evidence to other people. Yeah, yeah, that's the truth. Well, um, pivoting off pivoting off of this, back to a brighter topic, I suppose. Back to back to killing <laughs> okay. deer. Um, sure. You mentioned trail cameras a little bit as one of the pieces of the puzzle sometimes for people in October. I'm just kind of curious to hear about your overall take on how you're utilizing trail cameras throughout the year. We always like to kind of hear everyone's different perspective on this as it's, of course, you know, one of the most commonly used and, and probably um, positively used tools out there for helping deer hunters. Is that a big piece of what you're doing? You know, I, I don't use them as religiously as some people do, and part of that is because I I tend not to hunt the same locations as nearly as often as the average person does. I, uh, For instance, this year I was in Wyoming a few weeks ago. Uh, Dr. Kroll and I were, were hunting out there. It was a ranch I'd never been to before. I don't know if I'll ever be there again. Uh, they were using trail cameras heavily, and they certainly played into uh, our taking a couple of beautiful bucks. Um, that said, you know, so it isn't always, you know, me personally, that's actually running the cameras as much as people I'm hunting with or, you know, hunting on their property or their operation. So in many cases, of course, that is playing directly into where we, where we have stands set up and where we end up killing deer. Um, that said, I mean, I do still think that the greatest advantage of trail cameras is not so much in directly leading to a kill of a certain deer that was on camera. I still believe the greatest advantage, if you will, number one, they're fun. People love, you know, it's like Christmas every time they get to their trail camera. It's like, well, what's on my camera? Well, that frankly might be more fun to them than actually sitting in a frozen tree waiting for a buck that never comes by. And that's <laughs> what that's what the reality of hunting itself often is. We know that. The anticipation of deer season is quite often more interesting and enjoyable than hunting itself. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just a fact of life based on the conditions we deal with. So 
so if you can extend throughout the whole year, whether it's shed hunting, whether it's trail cameras in particular, the study and the observation and and the sense of wonder you get from quote watching your deer at two o'clock in the morning over a bait station, which you could never see that yourself with your own eyes, and yet you get to observe nature in a way that, that 30 years ago we simply could not do. Well, is that a bad thing? And certainly, I look at that as a very positive thing. Um, and yet, I would say that that's why I say that in many cases, guys have got deer on trail camera, but they never they never see the deer in daylight, or the neighbor kills it three months later, two miles away, chasing a doe. But yet, they know what deer it was. So their involvement with specific deer and their ability to manage their land and and understand their buck doe ratios and all these things, and the fawn crop and predator problems and so many things. Even trespassing, obviously, security is a big, a, a big boon of, of trail cameras. So I look at all of this and say it has added tremendously to our enjoyment of the deer woods, whether it has resulted in us pinpointing old Smokey and getting him shot the third morning he comes down that trail. That's another matter. But just enjoying what we do as deer hunters and deer managers, I think that's been a tremendous boon. So I, I look at it like even when I'm not running them myself, I, I'm a I'm very much in favor of their use and and honestly when I have a chance to use them myself I certainly do but when we jump around and hunt four days here on a place we've never been and then and then a month later we're a thousand miles away hunting five days with somebody we've never never place we've never been before uh, it's a little difficult to use them for patterning per se in our hands but we do utilize the knowledge that they that they have provided to the landowner before we ever got there. So in that sense, we do use them quite a bit. So, you know, on that topic of the fact that you are traveling all across across the country, you've hunted in in many different areas compared to probably the average hunter. Um, I'm kind of curious about just picking your brain about some of those regional differences. You know, one thing we've never talked about on this show is hunting Texas. And it sounds like you grew up in Texas. I imagine you've hunted there a lot. Can you speak at all about some of the unique aspects of hunting in Texas, whether it be the culture or strategies? You know, to be honest with you, it is, you know, almost everything about hunting whitetails in Texas is a little different. In some some way, a whitetail is still a whitetail. I mean, we, we understand the animal is still the same, whether he's in South Florida, whether he's in Northern Alberta, it's still the same animal, but he, he lives in such a different world that, in many ways, it's like hunting a different species, but nonetheless, it's, you know, people are the same in Ethiopia, Argentina, Canada, you know, fill in the blank. A person is still a person, but their lifestyle and what they've dealt with in their cultural, everything about their their existence is tied to where they're from and, and, and who they're surrounded by. Well, deer are the same way. So Texas deer, I've often said, are, if you, until you've been to Texas and hunted whitetails, you can't really say that you've checked all the boxes as a whitetail hunter. And I say that knowing that a lot of people will never get that opportunity, and I don't, I don't demean people who never go, believe me. I, I, I'm blessed to have been born there and hunted there many times. But this is a, it's a different world. Um, you see a lot of deer, generally speaking. The deer are not terribly you know, running over the farthest mountain as soon as they see somebody stick their head up over the horizon. They, the deer are acting like deer. They're acting like deer should everywhere, but in many cases deer hunted so hard they don't get to act that way. And yet in Texas you kind of see them act the way deer want to act, 
Well, that's that's a good thing because that's really that's, that's part of the appreciation of the animal is seeing their natural behavior. You see a lot of bucks. Um, yeah, the deer are smaller body, but you see so many of them. Who cares? And the bigger deer are still impressive. Uh, but it's the culture, it's the people, it's the size of the land holdings, it's the unique habitat, it's the hunting methods. Almost anything goes in Texas. You can ride around in a motor vehicle. Don't even have to turn the motor off on private land. Roll the window down and shoot one. Wow. You feel like shooting one that way, you can. Well, if it's run deer hunting in Texas, it's, you know, I, I can't tell that they've got three million deer left. I mean, you know, it doesn't look to me like it's exactly wiped them out. That said, I understand that that's a foreign way of hunting. It's a foreign way of looking at, the, at, at hunting uh, in a general sense to a lot of people who've never been exposed to that. Uh, but you don't get a lot of deer drives down there. You don't get a lot of people shooting at running deer. You get people hunting, you know, relatively calm deer, acting naturally on private land uh, in nice habitat that is that is different from almost anywhere else. And 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 that to me is just, uh, you know, if I could only hunt one state from now on, I would hunt Texas. But it isn't because the size of the deer. It's just that. You know, Texas is my home state, and I just feel like there's so many different kinds of hunting there. Um, you know, it's, it's seven, 800 miles across the state. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot of different habitats to hunt there. You'd never run out of different ways to hunt, and there's a lot of big bucks. And you can hunt them with a rifle and a rut. You can hunt them with a bow. You can hunt them with a crossbow. I guess you can do whatever you want to. And basically, you know, it's just one of those special places in the deer universe. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to have grown up there. I'll put it that way. Now, what's the public? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mark. No, Danny, it's, it's all you. What's the uh, public land pre presence in Texas? Well, there isn't much of it. Of course, if you look at, you look at, you know, Illinois has almost none either. Uh, Iowa right. doesn't have much. Uh, a lot of right. states don't have very much. But in Texas, what makes it different is that the private land is not only overwhelming, but very, but not very much of it can be hunted for free. And it's been that way, though, since before I was born. I remember back to the early 60s of deer hunting in Texas, and it was the leasing already existed in Texas then. Uh, so when it came to the Midwest and in other places, of course, it was culture shock because people just, oh, my goodness, this is the end of the world. Well, it seemed normal to me because I'd grown up around it. But, you know, so there wasn't there's never been much of it in terms of public land or free access compared to most states. However, man, last year, I mean, a guy took a bow and killed a deer over, I think he grossed about 215 in central Texas on public land, on Corps of Engineers land. Wow. And yet that's an area that people say, well, you can't kill a big buck there. Well, this guy killed one, you know, big wow. non-typical. And so so there's opportunity there. North Texas up on Lake Texoma, you know, two, deer over 250 have been killed in that county with a bow. So, I mean, it's not like there's no opportunity. It's just that, you know, it's spotty and you have to know what you're looking for. So on that topic, why... Why is it, and maybe it's just, I don't know, the fate of history, but why is the culture in Texas in relation to hunting and with access so different? I mean, why is it that leasing took place so early on? And then secondarily, why is the the fenced hunting culture, high fence, low fence, whatever, why is that so prevalent in Texas compared to everywhere else based on your experience and what you've heard and seen? Sure. Now, now, of course, you know, right up front, we, even with the fencing thing, most most land in Texas is not high fenced. 
Um, in fact, even most land in South Texas, I would say, probably is not high fence. It's just that the fences, when you drive down a road in Texas, I mean, if there's high fence, it's right next to the road. On, maybe it's on both sides, and you just think, golly, I'm in, in the middle of a, you know, some kind of a prison compound or something, and it goes on for 30 miles, you know. Wow. But but some, sometimes there's you'll have large areas that are all high fence, all individual ranches, all fenced apart from each other. Now, now, of course, sometimes you're talking about a place that is uh, 30,000 acres and all of the brush has thorns on it and it's so thick you can't see 20 feet unless you're on a road or on a fence line. And so you have to have, practically have a helicopter to see the deer that are in it, yet they're surrounded by a high fence. And so, you know, how that began... I mean, there were people there that had the resources. I mean, there were some very wealthy ranchers there that had resources, and they either, you know, were having neighbor problems. That's generally what causes fencing problems. Uh, fences to be built is, is, is the old problem with neighbors. It isn't so much that, in fact, I know people that have built fences because they had food plots, and they were low fence with their neighbors, and their neighbors made no effort to control the deer number. So every time the neighbor would, this guy would plant a food plot, especially if you irrigated it, well, here came all these deer. Well, come deer season, you shoot all these does, and you think, okay, I've got my deer number down. The next year, here comes another wave because there's nothing to stop them from coming off the neighbor. So in some cases, fences were literally built to keep deer out more so than to keep deer in. Nonetheless, when they are confined, I understand, you know, as well as anybody, the rule of fair chase with, with BNC and PNY is you just can't have them, you know, inside an artificial confinement of that nature, um, you know, and call it fair chase. But I have also said, look, if I were, if you told me I could be a buck chasing a doe and I could be in a 50,000 acre pasture of head high brush and cactus in South Texas, surrounded by a high fence, or... I could be in a snowfield in Alberta in the one wood lot that's in this whole half a county, and I've, I've gone in there with this doe into this wood lot in, in knee-deep snow, and there's two sets of tracks going into it and none coming out, and there's 25 guys in orange lined up in a circle around that wood lot. Which buck would I rather be? <laughs> yeah. I'd way rather be the buck in the high fence than I would that, quote, free-ranging buck in Canada. You know, because which one's got a better chance of escaping? I mean, and so that so you, it's hard to define high fence as good, bad, or otherwise. I think it's just another management tool. I understand the people that say, "Oh, look, well, that's not fair chase." The fact of the matter is that most people, in my opinion, who complain about fair chase, they're not worried about fair to the animal. They're worried about fair to them, quote, competing with the guy that gets to hunt inside of one. That's the reality of it. I don't believe any of these people are concerned about animal welfare. I don't think that's why they oppose high fence. They just feel like that guy's got an edge on them, and they don't like it. And and I don't. And nobody will ever convince me otherwise. And so I just think if people look deep in their hearts, that they will realize that's why they don't like high fence. They're not worried about the deer. Deer inside a high fence are probably better taken care of than a lot of low fence deer are. And I say all this as a guy who doesn't. I've hunted high fence many, many years ago, but I don't do it anymore. But I have no problem with it as a management tool because I know most of the people that have high fences also really love their ranches and they love their land and they're trying to, to grow big deer, even though they know they can't go in the record book. They just want to do the best they can with their land, and a fence allows them to do that. 
so it isn't I don't put it out there as a polarizing topic as much as I just think it's it's poorly understood by people who've never been around it. Yeah, it's definitely something very foreign to so many of us who've never been exposed to anything like that. And I can understand how there's definitely some shades of gray, especially large properties like that. But I'm curious, would you would you make the same defense for one of these situations where it's the small areas like a 20 acre enclosure where they are micro breeding with, you know, artificial insemination of these bucks and, you know, creating these gargantuan animals, et cetera, et cetera. And then selling off, you know, one of those deer to be shot in there for $50,000. Is that something that is different than what you're describing? Yeah, that's animal husbandry. And that is basically you have converted deer into livestock at that point. Um, I have no interest in hunting livestock. I don't think that's a positive image for hunting. Now, that said, you know, it's, of course, up to every, you know, I guess, the public or the, the, the leaders in every state or province to decide what's legal and what's not in terms of, uh, you know, enclosures and, and, and commercialized hunting inside high fences and all this sorts of thing. I, I really don't, don't look at it as, as having a blanket, you know, statement on it saying, okay, there's a definitive, if it's, if it's 600 acres, it's okay. If it's 599, it's not. Right. Well, I think we all know that you know there's a lot more variables than that, um, and so I can understand the taking the high road on it as the as the record books have, and just saying simply we're we're not going to get into this shades of gray routine. We're going to just say you've either got a fence around it or you don't. If it's if it's half a Texas inside of one fence, and you have access to all of it as a hunter, then it's high fence, you know, and so. Again, there's all these different shades of gray sometimes because we have the, uh, you know, we do have the people that say, well, mine is almost all high fence, except I left the gate open on one end, and if I sit there long enough, I'll kill the buck that comes through that gate. Well, in effect, you have altered the habitat, and you've altered the deer's opportunity to escape, but you're, quote, legal, perhaps, by Boone and Crockett, Pope and Young. I mean, people are always going to look for the loopholes. Right. But I would say that in general, if you start breeding animals, specifically, almost, if, if you start calling it put-and-take hunting, let's say, um, you know, you know, we don't look at, you know, game birds as like, well, what's the state record rooster for Minnesota? What, which one had the longest tail? Well, that one was shot in the wild, but this one was a release bird, so he doesn't count. Well, same with stock fish. I mean, we have different attitudes sometimes about big game being stocked and released and, you know, put and take versus hunt small game birds or fish, something of that nature. We, we kind of differentiate that in our minds, I think. But when it comes to big game, I just don't think you can have a, an animal that was ever handled by man and really, and then released back into an enclosure at any point. You know, it's one thing to say you had a fawn that you got out of a fence. You turn him loose, and five years later, out in the wild, he became a Boone and Crockett. Well, that's different from saying you, you bottle fed him, you know, or you, you gave him a name or you tattooed something, a number in his ear. He was walking around with a yellow ear tag in him, and you shot him. You know, all these are different shades of livestock and animal husbandry as opposed to pure wildlife management, in my opinion. I mean, my opinion doesn't count for much, but that's just my opinion. Yeah. 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 I tend to, I tend to agree with you on that. I don't personally think that I would not call that hunting. 
Um, and I think that no. therein lies some of the issues I take with, with some of those practices. But uh, I've, I've talked plenty about my opinion on all that on past <laughs> past conversations and everything. But I think you bring up an interesting point, and it's one that sometimes I, I sometimes fail to think through because of just not having that context, you know, having the experience in Texas where I think it's easy for some of us to, put, to throw that blanket negativity on high fence when, to your point, you know, there's very different shades of gray when it comes to that whole issue. But back to back to killing deer. If I'm in Texas, and this is a horrible question. I know this is a horrible question, but like I mentioned, we've never really talked about Texas hunting on this show before. And I, I apologize to everyone who hunts in Texas and who listens and who's thought, why why don't you guys care about us? So I'm gonna put a lot of pressure on you right now, Gordon. For someone hunting in that's Texas, a, that's, a, that's okay. I don't, I don't mind. I'll talk about Texas all day. That's fine with me. So, <laughs> so, so for somebody hunting in Texas, you know, on their own, in like, mm-hmm. can you give me a Cliff Notes version overview of your best advice for killing mature deer in Texas? A handful. If you, of, were if hunting, you had to pick a handful of things. If 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 the thing about it in Texas, it's all about access. If you have access where the habitat is good, it probably has a stable and relatively dense population of whitetails already there. I mean, there are some marginal habitats in northwest Texas. You get out in some real open, dry country with very little habitat. It's a little bit of linear habitat, but very fragmented. Some of that country doesn't have many deer in it. But if you get anywhere in the eastern half or two-thirds of the state, and what I would tell somebody is if you were going to go to Texas and you said, look, here's, because we all have a budget, you know, we may not adhere to it, but we all have some idea of what we can spend to go deer hunting every year. If somebody says, look, I've got a thousand dollars, I've saved it for two years in a coffee can, I want to go Texas to Texas and at least say I went. Okay, well, th- 300 of that and $320, that's going to cost you your license. So already you're down to pretty much gas money and eating fritos you know but okay where can you go and have a chance to kill a deer well yeah you can put in for some of these core of engineer hunts they're mostly bow hunts there are some probably you could knock on enough doors if you had enough time you, you probably could get somebody in a little not in the prime areas but some of these fringe areas you probably get somebody say yeah i'll let you hunt for fifty dollars or whatever you know go out and sit on that stump and see if one comes by you might kill a big buck doing that i mean in general if you really want to take it seriously most outsiders are going to end up either hunting with family or they're going to 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 to, in many cases actually do a season lease of land the way a lot of people now do in the midwest they may not live there but they may say look we you know four of us going to go together and, and lease this little farm or ranch and that's how most guys end up doing it. But finding that place is, is difficult no matter where you go, a place of any quality. And so I would say myself, based on the size of some of the deer killed around some of the public reservoirs, the Corps of Engineers land, I probably would look at that first and say, that's my best shot at killing a really nice deer at, quote, bargain prices in Texas. That, that, would, be my, that would be my approach personally. Interesting. And this is another thing that I've, I've read a lot about in the past, just a tactic that I've heard that works remarkably well in Texas compared to a lot of places, and that's just rattling, right? We, we all rattle all across the country to, with varying levels of success, but from what I understand, sure. it's different in Texas. Is that true? 
Well, it probably, you know, who's to say where it really started? I do think it was it was popularized, no question, in South and Central Texas, uh, probably back in the 50s and even into the 60s. Uh, early practitioners like in Texas circles, Bob Ramsey, who, he's, he's dead and gone now, but he was considered one of the, uh, the truly the founding father of modern rattling in Texas. And he taught a lot of the outdoor riders, he, and, and they have then it proliferated from there. Uh, long before television or anything of that nature. Uh, but I will say that there's something about Texas. When you when you start rattling in Texas and things are right, uh, you'd better have your gun ready and you'd better be looking. Because literally, I mean, I've killed deer that, walked, that jumped out of the brush within 10 seconds, mature deer, <laughs> and just said, here I am, shoot me. Wow. Okay, and I shot him. <laughs> Now, you know, I didn't. I didn't argue with him. I just shot. Right. Okay, so good call. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes it's just that magical. Sometimes you can sit in one spot in the brush, have, and say that I saw ten or more bucks. I mean, you're you're on the ground in the brush. You're not even in a blind. You're not in a tree. You're not. You're just in the brush. Okay, and you saw ten bucks that you could identify differently. Come in and kind of half circle you like sharks almost. And then they'd leave and get downwind, and they'd run off or whatever. Then someone would come back, and then a little one would run into the middle of them and say, what's going on, guys? I mean, sometimes it's just it's a nuthouse sometimes. So does it work like that in most other places? Absolutely not. Um, Texas, there's something about it that's just magical. It must be the, the, the herd dynamics. It may be the habitat type. But South Texas in particular, if you if you hit the antlers – you need to have your gun loaded. You need to be looking around. You need to be ready ready to shoot something because they, literally before you can get settled in, you might have the biggest buck you've ever seen 20 yards from you looking right down your throat. Jeez. So now, what is... now why, is that, why it's that way, I wish I could tell you because I'd make it that way everywhere. <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> but I, I'm not that smart, you know. That would be nice. What, what is the right, you said like when the timing is right or something along those lines, what are the right conditions or the right time to actually pull off that type of scenario in Texas? Is it just the rut? When is that? I don't know. Is it something different? You know, it's funny. I, I, I've, I've rattled in a lot of places. I think the earliest I've ever seen deer come to rattling was like tinkling antlers was like early September in Kansas. And the latest I've ever seen them relative to the rut was like January the 9th in Iowa, where I've seen a deer come in and say, clearly that deer is responding to, to rattling. The latest I've killed the deer that I could say was coming into, quote, rattling, although in this case it was an actual live buck fight that he was responding to, was February the 22nd in South Texas. Wow. Um, I, we heard the deer fighting in the brush, the six-and-a-half-year-old eight-pointer that was like 2.30 on the hoof, big, big Texas deer. He goes rushing over there. I whistled at him, stopped him, and shot him before he got to the fight, but we could hear the fight in the brush. This was February the 22nd, but that's also about two months past peak rut in that area those deer normally rut in december so it wasn't like february 22nd in you know arkansas or something but it but it was definitely way 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 late in the year and that was one of those places you had you know you could one of those ranches you could hunt through the end of february with uh, you know bucks and does because of a special permit situation but we literally killed a buck on february 22nd running to an actual buck fight so you know if i look at it and i say you know what are the conditions that it takes um, I've tried it early. I've tried it late. I've, I've, you know, mostly you're going to kill them in between. Uh, some people say, man, I just don't like 
I don't like peak rut because that's, you know, all the big bucks are with those. Well, there are times during peak rut even, granted that's a little bit later than you normally get the best response. Normally late pre-rut is when you get the best response. Also when you get the best response to like buck decoying. But I would say that you can rattle in some really big deer during the absolute peak of the rut because they happen to be between does. Um, I rattled in a big 150-something-inch nine-pointer in Alberta one time on the ground at 17 steps in the middle of a oil field swamp. Uh, November the 18th, that was as peak rut as you could get. And yet he came walking in at 11.30 in the morning, just walk up, see what I was, and I shot him. So, you know, it, you know, they don't swarm around you in Alberta, maybe the way they do in South Texas, but it still works. It's just a function of lower deer densities. Sometimes they have to travel farther to get to you. But, you know, if you're patient, if you can't rattle them in if you don't try to rattle them. That's the one thing about it. You know, you'll never rattle in the deer you don't try to rattle. So <laughs> a lot of people say that, well, it just doesn't work. I tried it one time, it didn't work. Well, it's like saying I tried a green, you know, jitterbug one time and I didn't catch a big bass on it, so it's not a good bass lure. Right. Well, that's, that, that's crazy. But yet, that's, if you don't have confidence, you can, you can fake yourself out of almost any kind of success if you try hard enough. And a lot of people just don't have the confidence because they think, oh, this is silly. This isn't going to work. Well, your opinion doesn't matter. The deer's opinion is what matters, you know. And if you do it right and you give it a chance, a lot of times you'll, you'll realize, man, this, this stuff works. And that's true of almost any tactic. you got to give it a fair chance. All right. Well, before we move on to my next question for Gordon, we need to pause briefly for a word from the sponsors of this episode of the podcast, Carbon Express Arrows. And I've been shooting Carbon Express Arrows for very close to my entire bow hunting life. But one thing that I know I've personally struggled with at times, and I know a lot of other hunters have too, is just wrapping my head around all the technology that goes into an arrow and how it might make one arrow better than another. So that said, today I pulled in Carbon Express's Alex Tate to help us try to understand that very question in regards to their flagship arrow, the Maxima Red. Uh, what goes into that arrow is, um, first of all, a lot of technology, um, something that you just really don't see on the market um, across the board. So difference between that and your general arrow that you're going to find in any other company is going to be the triple spine. So what that means is there's three separate sections that are fused together. Um, the middle section being extremely weak, the end section being extremely stiff. What that does um, for a bow hunter specifically is it keeps all of that flex in the middle. So an arrow does need to flex to be accurate. Um, it needs to flex a certain amount, not too much, not too little. And that's why you see different spines um, for different draw lengths, different poundages, because that arrow does need to flex a specific amount. Um, so getting back to the red zone, what that, what that does differently is that it still flexes just as much as it needs to, but your broadhead moves around less, your veins are moving around less, your knocks moving around less. All of that flex is harnessed in the middle, um, and it, it really helps with accuracy, specifically with broadhead accuracy. Now that makes sense to me. So if you'd like to learn more about Carbon Express arrows or the Maxima Reds, which are in fact the arrows that I personally shoot, you can visit carbonexpressarrows.com. And now, back to the show. Now, now, a lot of these aggressive tactics, like that kind of rattling and stuff, I feel like, and these are assumptions, but I feel like that's something, you know, that, that works particularly well in a spot like Texas, where you mentioned there's some kind of unique herd dynamics, or maybe in a spot like 
Iowa or Kansas where, you know, there's a disproportionate high number of older deer and lower numbers of hunters mm-hmm. relative to lots of spots in the country. But I'm curious, Texas, it's a southern state. Now compare that to one of these other southern states, one of the southeastern states like Alabama or Georgia where you live or anything along those lines. How does it differ from Texas to those parts of the country? Is is our aggressive tactics like rattling and everything, you know, on average, something that are going to be on par with their neighbor in Texas, or is it totally different in that part of the country? I, I think you're. De- I think relative to the number of bucks within hearing range, good property is good property. I think, you know, I can't say this because I've never hunted New Hampshire, but I suspect that if you're in New Hampshire and you're in a buck's in the right frame of mind and you rattle to him and he hears you that there's a very good chance that he's coming. Now, the habitat type, uh, his particular aversion to moving, you know, through openings and things like that based on hunting pressure and all that, I mean, I do think that obviously all that comes into play, much as it does with, you know, does a big bull elk on public land that's, that's heard 5,000 bad bugles from hunters or turkey yelps from hunters, you know, whatever, do all these animals get educated and do they get, you know, call shy and all that? Well, absolutely they do. You know, the older ones have, have heard this routine before. But in general, if you say I have not over rattled or called or decoyed or whatever the tactic is, but I'm going to apply it at the right time, let's say late free rut, early breeding period, the right kind of habitat, you know, where deer feel comfortable moving in daylight through this habitat to get to the to the sound of the fight or the or the the grunt or whatever it is, then I do think that on an individual basis the deer in here in the southeast are just about as likely to respond. They might not come in acting like, you know, wild eyed, acting like they want to fight, but they do come in to check it out. And that's really frankly about all you need. You know, ideally you just want him to come in where you can get him shot. You don't care if he comes in with his hair on fire. But but I would say that you don't tend to see the response here as much because, frankly, the land holdings are smaller, the hunting pressure is higher, the deer are somewhat more educated in general, and frankly, there's so much cover here that they're very difficult to see. Uh, they're very difficult to see in Texas, too, but you just set up where they have to cross a sendero or a cactus flat or something where you've got a fighting chance to at least get a look at them before they smell you and run off. And so, and there you've got so much more land to work. I mean, if it, if you rattle right here in Texas and you say, well, we didn't rattle in, but a couple of two-year-olds, let's, uh, let's walk 300 yards crosswind and go over there and set up by that stock pond and we'll rattle again where well, you go over there and there's seven different bucks and you, and you shoot one of them and then you walk half a mile over here and then you see another big one. Okay, well, that's, that's a different world than almost anybody can, can relate to in whitetail hunting because that's just not, quote, normal. Uh, but yet down there you have you may have thousands of acres one pasture so you don't you're not limited to one tree span sitting up on one two acre food plot i mean you got you're you're hunting a very big world yeah that's so so different so in that in that situation in the southeast where there's so much cover and a lot more hunters um i guess reverting back to what we originally talked about at the beginning of our conversation let's say that's our situation i'm hunting the southeast lots of cover lots of hunters and it's October. Is there anything different that I'm doing down there than I would, you know, for me up here in Michigan, like the stuff we talked about early, is there anything unique to that part of the country that, you know, I could possibly apply if I was trying it out down there? Well, here in Georgia, you tend to get a November rut. Um, 
places like South Carolina, low country, the coastal plain there, the parts of South Georgia that are adjacent to that, you tend to get an October rut. Um, the low country of South Carolina right now is pretty much peak rut. So you could you could definitely, you know, ramp up your aggressive tactics, um, whether it was calling or just you know, hoping to catch bucks out cruising food plots and, and, and cutovers and things like that, looking for a doe. Uh, you get a lot more daytime movement. You come over here to Georgia right now, and the movement's not nearly as high. A lot of these places were restocked with totally different genotypes of deer over a long period of time, and those genotypes have tended to hold in terms of rutting dates. So Georgia, even parts of Georgia, one part of one county was restocked with Texas deer. They rutted a certain time. And another part of that same county was restocked with Michigan deer at one. Well, they 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 have still have two separate kind of ruts in that one county, even hmm. 50, 50 years later, and that's that's roughly 13, uh, 15 generations of deer. Let's say that but they still have basically, and those deer have not totally homogenized. And so you really do have to know when you say October in the southeast. Well, that could mean if that means Alabama, Mississippi, where they have a December a Christmas rut. Or in Black Belt of Alabama, where you have, I mean, I shot a buck chasing a doe January 30th a few years ago. It's a fully mature buck, and that's next to the last day of the season. And so, you know, where else could you find that? Not many places, but yet, so, it, it, but that's just the deer they have. They have very late rutting deer. Other places, like, say, South Carolina, they happen to be early. So it's a broad you know, it, it's a broad topic to try to cover to say any given date in the southeast is uh, it's not like the Midwest where you say, golly, November 10th is a magical day. It's always going to be, I don't care what the weather is, whatever else, some big bucks looking for a doe on November the 10th somewhere. Uh, but maybe not, maybe not in Alabama, maybe not in Louisiana, maybe not in South Carolina. So, you know, it's difficult down here. A big part of what it is is you have so much food hit the ground all at once. you got so many acorns, and they're so widespread, and the deer are scattered out to a huge amount of, of cover. And a lot of that cover in pine woods is evergreen cover. So good luck to you, and you can't bait in most of these areas. Some of them you can, but not all of them. So what are you going to do to pull him into this one spot? I mean, you better have a really hot food plot. Uh, you better really, you know, have some really, uh, you know, be be dialed in with trail cameras on exactly which trails the big buck is using. If you had that advantage, you know, that you worked for, I do think you'd have a fighting chance. But it's still going to be better in general down here as you get later in the year. Switching up uh, questions just a little bit. You've been to a lot of state, different states to hunt, and aside from your home state of Texas, do you have a favorite state that you like to go hunt in? Well, yeah, there's many places that I would, you know, really love to just, just hunt, you know, anytime I got an opportunity. I have not hunted, if you talk to most people that grew up in open country as I did, most of those people feel somewhat claustrophobic as you get into the woods. I mean, I'm kind of that way. I grew up in, in brushy, hilly ranch country where if you saw a deer half mile away, you just went over there and shot him or tried to shoot him. Uh, you know, that's three farms away here in Georgia, you know, I mean, and, and, and it's all flat pine woods. So, so there's certain kinds of habitat that I don't feel as comfortable in and as proficient in uh, and, and heavy bottomland swamps and things of that nature are not really my cup of tea. 
uh, I've hunted New Brunswick, I've hunted Nova Scotia, you know, I've hunted a lot of places, but some of that country is very good deer hunt, deer country, and but it is not particularly suited to my way I like to hunt. Um, I like to be able to get out on foot. I like to be able to to cover some ground. I like to be able to find a good setup and then and then work that setup. And I like to have some roll to the land. I like to have a little bit of openness so I can kind of see the land in three dimensions. Because uh, I don't want to have to be living off my GPS to tell where I am. I'd like to just be able to get out in the country and just kind of go. Now, naturally, some type some parts of the world don't lend themselves to that at all. Uh, you know, good luck in eastern North Carolina. You know, you can't see 20 feet, and it's all a swamp. However, if I get into central Montana, if I get into western South Dakota, if I get into the Texas Panhandle on up through really all up into North Dakota, all that country on the western Great Plains, I would say, in general, is a little bit more my cup of tea. And that could be from Texas all the way north, clear up into the prairie provinces of Alberta. But I do think some of the more overlooked stuff is really, you know, western Dakotas, uh, you know, parts of Nebraska. They don't get talked about much, but, man, that's that's some good deer country up there. We just shot, like I say, Dr. Crow and I went to, uh, you know, northeastern Wyoming in, you know, last month, and we shot a couple of beautiful deer up there, and that country is, is very scenic and productive. I I just feel like that kind of country is what I enjoy hunting, regardless of what's there. But it also tends to have some really nice deer in it as well. Yeah, I, I just hunted Montana for the first time, which was my first western whitetail trip. And that was just incredible, both, as you mentioned, scenery and the actual deer and deer hunting element of it. Um, man, I could see myself getting pretty quickly addicted to that type of hunting. <laughs> 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 well, and the thing about it is that, you know, we understand, we're, we're blessed to get to travel. And we, I understand that I've hunted, I think, I, I don't know if I've ever totally counted them up, but I've, I think I've hunted close to 40 states and provinces for whitetails. And that, you know, I have not hunted South America, but I've hunted Finland, I've hunted New Zealand, I've hunted Canada, Mexico, most of the U.S. I mean, at least been there long enough to say, hey, I was here. I see what the hunting here is like. That doesn't mean I've shot deer in all those places, but I've you know, I've, I've gone out of my way to go to a lot of places because I feel like that educates me and helps me understand what's relevant to a reader or to a viewer of the TV show. So I, I look at that as, you know, it's a, I won't say as a job but it, or a duty, but it has certainly helped me to come up with what I think is relevant content because I see what people have to deal with here in Georgia. Uh, Georgia's a hard state to hunt, but they have some big deer. Uh, nonetheless, it's a hard state to hunt. You know, uh, Kentucky, everybody wants to go to Kentucky. Kentucky is not the easiest state to hunt, but they do have big deer. Um, you know, some of those parts, northwestern Montana, Idaho, eastern Washington, a lot of that country up in there is beautiful and has big deer, but it, the deer don't just run out and say, here I am, shoot me. I mean, you know, big deer are hard to kill pretty much wherever you go. But I would say that Clearly, you know, some places are hot spots for a reason. They just got more big deer, the regulations, the season timing, the weapon restrictions, whatever. They just make it easier to kill. And that's why we tend to think of those as the hot spots. But, you know, a great deer hunting probably can be had almost anywhere you have deer. And sometimes it's what we make of it. It's, it's you know, our expectations have to be tempered to what's realistic. And if they're not, then we're quite often going to find ourselves frustrated. I don't care if you're in the business or not. I mean, you're not going to shoot what's not there. And if you don't give yourself a fighting chance to stay there long enough to kill one and figure one out, your chances aren't very good either. I don't care how good the place is. So 
so every situation has its own challenges. It's just that some have a much greater payoff than others. Yeah, yeah, that, that's such great advice there. I got a question, and it kind of it kind of goes back to your profession of of being a writer. When when you do write an article about maybe strategy or um, or of or hunting in general, how do you how do you approach your writing? that will allow someone from Texas or someone from New England or someone from the Dakotas to all read it and maybe take something away from that? Well, I don't know that there is any universal advice that equally applies. I, I guess if, if every article started with go where there's a lot of big deer, hunt a lot and be able to shoot, <laughs> you know, I, in fact, I've said that in seminars before. I said, look, I can tell you in 10 seconds, you know, how to kill big deer. And I said, now I'm going to spend the next 59 minutes and 50 seconds explaining what I just said in 10 seconds. <laughs> but that the, re, the reality of it is, is that you're always, and that's, that's part of the advantage of traveling. Now, anymore, we all feel like we get to travel because if we stay on Facebook or Instagram or whatever long enough or watch enough outdoor TV or read the magazines, we'll feel like we just went on a world tour every time, we, every half hour. And, and maybe, just, so in some ways, the world has gotten smaller um, and people that don't even hunt outside of their home county ever may feel like they know what it's like to hunt in Illinois or Alberta or or Florida because they've just been exposed to it now, which is a good, which is a very good thing. I think that's I think that's great. People enjoy doing that. Um, but when it comes time to talk about what really works in all these places, there is no universal tactic that I could say. Oh, just this is the magic bean. I mean, all you got to do is either plant this and, you know, and get your gun ready or you got to rattle a certain way and here they come. Or, you know, if you use this scent or this camo or whatever else, I think I think most of us are smart enough to know that there's a lot of different ways to kill deer. Okay, and not everybody in the same area that's successful uses the same equipment or hunts in the same way but they may all kill some nice deer occasionally. Well, that, that's because nice deer live there, you know, but, but it doesn't mean that just because you kill one big deer one time in your life that, that you even hunted the best way that day. Maybe you killed him despite yourself, you know? So, so sometimes I think we have to take these individual isolated cases of success and be, and be honest with ourselves about it and say, look, you know, this was, you know, just because so-and-so killed a big one doesn't mean that everybody needs to hunt the way he did. So I take all of these, you know, monster buck kills to some extent with a grain of salt. I mean, I know most of the guys that kill most of the very biggest deer that have ever been documented, at least that we can identify the hunter. I know most of the guys, and very few of them are Daniel Boone, okay? <laughs> they they were in the right place, right time to kill a great deer, and they made it happen. They didn't blow it. When, it, when he came out, they shot him. They got him killed, okay? So good for them. But most of them don't put themselves forth as Daniel Boone either. They just say, look, I, you know, I, I, I did what seemed to work, and one day it was magic, and it was my turn. Okay. So, so when I look at my own tactical approach, I say, what the first thing I want to do is look for common denominators. I wrote an article a few years ago. In fact, I think it's a good example of this. I, I look back at one season, and I said, you know, in the last year, I killed – four or five mature bucks on food plots or right next to food plots in the morning. Now, most people would say that can't be done. Okay, you can't, no point even hunting a food plot in the morning. 
However, I killed almost all these deer around the rut, and my take on it, whether I kill one, I kill one in Maryland, I kill one in South Dakota, I kill one in Wyoming, another one in Texas, another one in Kansas, I think that was it. In one year, I killed mature bucks on food plots in all those places hunting in the morning. And most people would say that's a lifetime of morning food plot success. And I had it in like two months, okay? Now, I'm not <laughs> saying I did that because I'm Daniel Boone either, but I am saying that when I saw that pattern evolving in front of my eyes, I said, you know, there might be an article here. But what made me think it was an article is not that it was just one isolated oddball incident of killing a nice deer, but in three different time zones over two months, you know, halfway across the continent, the same pattern held. And so I said, look, there may be something to this pattern, and here's what I think there is to the pattern. And I talked about the fact of rutting activity, bucks coming back to circle back to food feeding areas in mid to late morning sometime looking for that last doe, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And these were, this all played into my success that one year. Um, and I didn't say, look, you can do this anytime you want to. I'm just saying, look, in one year, I saw this happen in a wide variety of situations, and these, I think, were the common denominators. So to me, that's the essence of the advantage of travel and the advantage of seeing all these different habitats is sometimes you do get to compare and contrast in fairly short order one place versus another, and you do see what the common thread seems to be of either success or failure. And if you can do that, you might can help somebody that's hunting in one of those kind of places. And, again, you're talking about a number of different habitats, a number of different uh, latitudes and longitudes. So then we're coming up on time here, Gordon, so I want to ask you one final question. And I want to kind of push you to answer the impossible, as you just described, that, you know, there's so many different ways that people can go about it. There's so many different things across all these different locations. But just hypothetically – We've got a reader of North American Whitetail Magazine who's hunted his whole, his or her life, reading these stories, seeing these great big bucks, and they still haven't got it done. They've not been able to kill whatever it is that they're trying to shoot. So for this person that wants to take that jump to now be targeting and actually successfully killing, let's say, the top 10% of bucks in their area, so it's relative to where they're at, is there one common denominator you could share, one common concept that no matter if you're hunting in Texas or Maine or Iowa or Michigan, is there one concept or couple concepts that you could share that could help that per- person make that next step up? Well, if, if I make the assumption that the person will cash in on their opportunity when they get it, that what's not holding them back is the inability to shoot or to hold it together under pressure, but they just are not getting the opportunity. If that's, if that's what's holding them back, you know, the one thing I would tell you is you have to be sure that what you're hunting is where you hunt. I mean, if you say that, you know, I'm just, I'm a failure. I haven't killed a 150 here in Georgia. Most guys in Georgia, I don't care. And there's some killers here in Georgia. They just, there's not a 150 where they hunt. Okay. So, you have to, and sometimes that means breaking away from where you, your comfort zone. I think that's one thing that a lot of guys are unwilling to do because of whatever the scenario, they just feel like, well, this is my hunting club. I've been a member here for so long. I don't want to find a new club. I don't want to go to a new place. I don't want to quit hunting with Jerry, even though he smokes in the truck on the way out <laughs> to the woods. I use my buddy. He's my brother-in-law. I can't, you know, at some point you have to just weigh what's holding you back. 
And if you really feel like, hey, there's one thing holding me back, the, the one thing we know is that if we keep doing what we've been doing in the same places, the chances are we're going to get the same results, right? So we've got to try something new. And sometimes new is it will scare people. You know, I don't want to go look for more land to hunt on. I don't want to go knock on doors. I don't want to do blah, 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 blah. Well, sometimes you just have to man up and say, you know, if it, if it means that much to me, i got to do what it takes to break out of the mold. And the mold is probably holding you back in ways you don't understand. So I really think sometimes you just have to say, man, I got to be a lone wolf. I got to go do it my way. I got to hunt harder. I can't let my brother-in-law hold me back. I got to go, I got to push the envelope harder. And, you know, and then, but still hunt really, really smart and be disciplined. I think if you do that in good country, you're going to get a chance. Now, what the deer is, and is he busted up when he walks by, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Does he stop behind a tree and you can't shoot him? I don't know. You know, those things happen. But I do know if you put yourself in close proximity to mature deer, you've got a better chance than if you don't. And if you just, if you'll just break free of what's been holding you back, in some cases psychologically, but, but often it's location, uh, you just got a better chance. I am twice as good a trophy hunter where there are twice as many big deer. I know that. That's the one thing I know about trophy hunting. I am, I am just better where there's more to shoot. And so go where they are. And if they're not where you are, either grow them or go somewhere else. Those are the things that in the end, you'll be glad you did. Yeah. Can't argue with that. And I I really like your advice when it comes to just breaking out of the mold. Um, That's one of those things that I think even if you're stuck in the same spot, even let's just say hypothetically, for whatever reason, you, you only have this one place to hunt. Even if you just totally look at new ways of going about things, you're going to learn something mm-hmm. new. You're going to break out of the same patterns that maybe your local deer have patterned you on. Um, I mean, there's some inherent immediate benefits to just breaking outside of the daily routine, trying new things. Um, I think that's a, that's a great thing for all of us to try to do a little bit more because it is really easy and comfortable to stick with the same old, same old. I think all of us probably fall into that sometimes. So Gordon, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. This has been interesting. Um, some different perspectives here that I think are really helpful for us to hear about. So thank you for sharing all that. And then, you know, if people want to learn more about what's going on with North American whitetail, the magazine or the website or the TV show or anything like that, where, where can they go to, to get that? Well, the simplest place would be northamericanwhitetail.com. Uh, we certainly, you know, um, obviously the magazine is out there on newsstands and most people subscribe to it of our readership. And obviously the TV show is itself is on Sportsman Channel several times a week. So wherever you find us, we welcome you and uh, hope everybody has a fantastic 2016 season. Awesome. Well, thank you, Gordon. And, and we wish you the best of luck of the rest of your hunts, too. Thanks so much, guys. Have a good one. You too. And with that, we are going to shut this one down. So. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And before we go, of course, we do need to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti Coolers, Ozonix, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Also, little, uh, I guess, 
favor to ask, I suppose. If you haven't yet, if you could give us a rating or review on iTunes, that is a huge, 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 massive help. It takes like 30 seconds to a minute, and uh, we'd love to hear an honest review from you. Same thing goes for the 100% Wild Podcast, which we're continuing to produce. It's our Q&A, shorter-form show with the guys over at Drury Outdoors, and they've really been having some good ones lately. So be sure to check that out, and if you have any feedback, we'd love to see your review too. All that said... Thank you again for joining us today. Hope you enjoyed this conversation with Gordon. I hope your hunts are going well, and I hope you will stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.